Wherever Meyer Lansky was, dead bodies turned up. A grand total of 43, actually. So what was he doing in Council Bluffs? Well, not only did the city not mind that the man the Reader's Digest had named as public enemy number one was operating a dog track in town in a state where dog racing was illegal, they invited him and even provided city property to do it. Council Bluffs has no shortage of quirky history, but this story has to be the strangest one of all. I mean, how would the city even come up with the idea to contact a mobster to help him get out of debt? And how would they even get in touch with him? Do mobsters have listed telephone numbers? It's a crazy story, but it's part of our history. So let's go back and fill in the details. Back, 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 back. Step into our time machine. Real stories of real people. Some good, some bad, some very strange, and all accidentally historic. Husband, father, businessman, and gangster. Meyer Lansky's life encompassed them all. He was a buddy of Charles Lucky Luciano, the father of modern organized crime. Together, they developed the National Crime Syndicate in the United States, otherwise known simply as the Syndicate. Lansky, too, had a desire to make money and for years he had done so through shady dealings supported by the mob. Lansky emigrated to the U.S. with his mother and brother when he was 10. Meyer Lansky now found himself on the streets of Manhattan's Lower East Side. Perhaps it was his diminutive stature that compelled him to stick up for himself and make his own way in the world. In adulthood, he stood 5 feet 4 inches tall and weighed only 136 pounds, the wraith-like wizard of organized crime. In any event, what Lansky lacked in brawn, he made up for in brains despite finishing only the eighth grade. He landed a job with a tool and die maker, but he still needed to supplement his paltry income. So he started a floating dice game, his first foray into illegal gambling. Between this endeavor and street brawling, Lansky, then 17, also had his first run-in with the law when he was arrested for assault. One thing led to another, and Lansky soon became the leader of a Jewish street gang. That's when he met another Jewish kid, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, and the local Italian gang boss, Charles Lucky Luciano. The three friends would later become partners. When Prohibition was enacted in 1920, Lansky, then only 18, saw a money-making opportunity in bootlegging. Part of his success lay in skill with numbers and, strangely enough, his integrity. He kept his word and he stored numbers in his head rather than leaving a paper trail. At this time, he and Siegel formed the Bugs and Meyer Mob, a new gang that hired out gunmen through Murder, Inc., otherwise known as Murder for Hire. In 1929, Lansky married his first wife, Anna Citron, and together they raised a daughter and two sons. Their first son was born with cerebral palsy and depended on his father for support his entire life. Despite his continued association with the mob, Lansky raised his children and took care of them like any other good American father. Meyer wanted his children to avoid what his own life had become. He insisted that his sons study hard and become respectable in society. When son Paul graduated from college and went to work for the U.S. government, Meyer was said to be proud of his son's accomplishments. In 1946, the Lanskys divorced, and Meyer married a manicurist named Thelma Schwartz. With the passage of Prohibition in 1920, Lansky had made his money in bootlegging. But the repeal of Prohibition in 1933 meant Lansky and his cohorts would have to look elsewhere for money-making opportunities, so they turned to casino gambling. Later that year, Lansky and Frank Costello, another gangland character, opened casinos in New York and Florida. Casinos in Cuba would follow in the late 1930s. Out of these enterprises came the syndicate. Little is written about Lansky's business activities from the late 30s to 1945. 
He continued to have connections with gambling activities in the U.S. and was a silent partner with other East Coast gang members in Bugsy Siegel's purchase of the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas. So where was Lansky during the early 1940s? The answer is simple but surprising. He was in Council Bluffs running the Dodge Park Kennel Club, a local dog racing business. Small potatoes for a big-time operator, it would seem, but Lansky was a schemer. Why he came to Council Bluffs, however, is more problematic. First, a bit of history. In 1936, Council Bluffs commemorated the 100th anniversary of the arrival of white settlers in southwest Iowa with a centennial exposition. Men grew beards and women donned bonnets. Much celebration ensued, with a parade, parties, and programs depicting the days of the early settlers. Unfortunately, several financial backers who had donated to the city-sponsored event found themselves losing $12,000 that the city couldn't repay. And so, as one report has it, they called Meyer Lansky who was said to have a history of assisting struggling municipalities by offering community handouts while he operated gambling establishments in the area. How the city found his phone number is not clear. But according to a 1958 FBI report on Lansky, in 1941, he and William Sims did indeed become holders of a five-year lease on the Dodge Park Fairgrounds. Part of the deal was that the partners would build a racetrack and a small stadium. They would also pay the park board $1,000 from track profit for a minimum of five weeks each racing season. The board could then pay back the creditors for their losses on the exposition. Anyone who knew Lansky's history wondered why a big-time racketeer would ever settle for an insignificant dog racing track in the Midwest. Some say he wanted to tie in with the Hollywood Florida Kennel Club and start racing in Council Bluffs as soon as the Florida Park closed for the season. Another theory was that he wanted to keep a low profile while the U.S. government was investigating his connection with murder for hire. Some said his people had influence with Iowa Governor George A. Wilson, who was thought dog racing might benefit southwest Iowa, which still struggled after the Depression. At any rate, with the leasing agreement in their hands, in 1941, Lansky and his partner set up the Dodge Park Kennel Club and put around $50,000 into building a track and grandstand. By the end of two racing seasons, the creditors had all their money back and Lansky had his dog track. Of course, gambling of any kind, casinos, horse racing, and dog racing, was illegal in Iowa at the time. But an interesting loophole in the law was all Lansky's genius needed to make dog racing a moneymaker. Here's how it worked. It may be illegal to bet on a dog, but there was nothing in Iowa law to prevent a person from buying a dog. Rather than placing a bet, a racing fan could purchase either a $2 or a $5 option toward the purchase of a racing dog. The options were for a win, place, or show finish. If a dog did well in the race, its purchase value went up. Option holders could then sell their options back to the track for a profit. Dogs that had a poor showing were considered worthless, and so were the options on them. This scheme was a moneymaker. The track brought large tax revenues to the city coffers and stayed open until 1944. Then a new mayor was elected, a reformer named William Byers. He must have sensed that Lansky and Sims' business was not what it seemed, and that gambling, by any other name, was still gambling. In 1946, however, the new mayor, Einer Jewell, had no problem with opening the track again in 1947. The Bluffs veterans of foreign wars even planned to sponsor the races. But the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation finally stepped in and said that options were the same as bets. They put a stop to the operation, and the dog track closed for good. To anyone familiar with the mob, Lansky will always be a gangster. But to the people who lived in Council Bluffs in the early 1940s, Lansky was the guy who co-owns the dog track down by the river and the guy who hired me when I needed some extra cash and a fellow that was very easy to work for. 
Lansky even earned praise from a Council Bluffs Police Department detective who said, I couldn't say one word against the man. When I knew him, you couldn't ask for a nicer fellow. Lansky ran a clean business in Council Bluffs. C.R. Brown, who was chief of detectives for the police department, said, Lansky was strict, and he wanted the police to be strict. He wouldn't even allow beer to be sold at the track. He was anything but the gangster type. Meyer Lansky's brief stay in Council Bluffs seems like a minor blip on the radar of the city's history. Hank Messick, author of the 1971 biography Lansky, doesn't even mention Lansky's nearly six-year connection with Council Bluffs. It's almost as if the story were a myth. One wonders what kind of man Lansky might have been if he hadn't grown up on the tough streets of Manhattan's Lower East Side. Or if he had gone past the eighth grade and possibly even to college and used his genius in positive ways. Or if he hadn't grown up in a country infused with anti-Semitism in the early 20th century. Or if he'd been a big man instead of just a little guy. Who might he have been if in his teens he hadn't met Bugsy Siegel and Lucky Luciano? Lansky may or may not have had a good heart. But every now and then, his behavior didn't follow suit with his mobster reputation. In Council Bluffs, people liked him, and he was respected as a businessman. He stayed out of trouble, supported local charities, and he used his financial genius to redeem those creditors and provide jobs at the track. And for those whose options on a dog brought in a little extra cash and some sorely needed entertainment in those dire days following the Depression, how could he have been anything other than that nice guy who co-owns the dog track? The Accidentally Historic podcast is produced by the Historical Society of Pottawatomie County in Council Bluffs, Iowa. We're on the web at thehistoricalsociety.org and on Facebook at Council Bluffs Revealed. Muriel Wagner is our president. Kat Slaughter, our museum's director. The podcast is edited and narrated by Dr. Richard Warner. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Or find us at accidentallyhistoric.com. Local history. Some good, some bad, and some very strange. We'll look forward to sharing more of it with you next time on Accidentally Historic.